Welcome to Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. Each week we bring you insights from the playmakers, dealmakers, and rule makers in the world of sports. I'll give you my take on some of the items of the week using my 30 years of experience doing deals for teams, leagues, and players in the $750 billion business of sports. Plus, we'll talk with a central figure in the sports world. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not represent the views of Reuters. Let's get started. The NFL making major bucks, or should we say pounds, in the U.K. ESPN releasing data compiled by consultancy Netfluential showing 16% of U.K. sports enthusiasts now follow the NFL, up from 9% five years ago. These fans are spending 65% more time this year versus last year consuming NFL content. The league aims to satisfy them with another three regular season games coming to London next year. For the first time, one will be played at Twickenham Stadium, the home of England rugby. The league also noted that a fourth international game could be added to the schedule in the near future as part of the NFL's international series, but this game could be played outside of the U.K. German soccer club Bayern Munich has signed its first global partnership with a major U.S. company, Goodyear. The long-term deal, taking effect next year, will provide Goodyear with perimeter advertising at the club's Bundesliga home games and give the Akron-based tire company international media rights as a top-tier platinum partner. While financial details not disclosed, the highest level of sponsorships the German club offers has an estimated annual value of $5 million, so expect Goodyear's deal to be near that marker. Initial focus will be on the German-speaking markets of Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, but both sides hope to make this a truly international deal. Oh, he's in the clear. He's gone away. Saved! And Miami Beckham United, David Beckham's hopeful MLS expansion bid, may not have a home in Miami's Little Havana neighborhood after all. Beckham's latest proposal to build a soccer-specific stadium next to Marlins Park appears to be in jeopardy. As the Miami-Dade school superintendent said, the school board vote to approve a partnership with the team might be postponed. Now, top stadium negotiator Tim Laiwicki suggested the team was going in a whole new direction, according to the Miami Herald. This upheaval of plans comes only days before Beckham's group had hoped to present a publicly backed deal to build a $200 million stadium in Little Havana. Small property owners had been blamed for blocking usage of that site. Regardless of where it lands, enough momentum is built up behind the expansion franchise that the MLS will inevitably have a beachhead of some kind in Latin America's gateway city. Sticking with the MLS, we now go to my interview with Commissioner Don Garber. MLS Commissioner Don Garber, 16 years NFL, 16 years here. Soccer Don, really good friend. I admire everything you do. Thank you for, for having me here. My pleasure. What have you done here for the last 16 years? Uh, tried to work hard to build a viable and popular professional Division I soccer league in America. And uh, so far, so good. So far, so good, and obviously a lot of issues business-wise. One of the big ones is the organizational structure, beginning of the uh, MLS before you got here. Single entity theory. People swear by it. A lot of other leagues don't do it, but you've had it as your staple. How important was that to the success of the MLS? Uh, no single entity, uh, no major league soccer, no 20 teams, no 15 stadiums, no birth of a soccer nation in our country. And the idea is really a very simple one, Rick. Uh, our owners are partners around the board table, making decisions collectively to create the league that we have become today and, and stark competitors on the field. It's actually a model that 
many other leagues around the world, and I think even some leagues here uh, would perhaps like to emulate. We'll get specific as to different components, but brand-wise, how do you view yourself today? What, what 30-second elevator speech on the brand of MLS? You know, a, uh, uh, a young adult in the world of, of uh, professional sports here in America, 20 years now, so we've been around for a full generation. Uh, the brand is very simple. We are the league for a new America, country that's changing, that's become increasingly global, uh, that has shifting demographics, that has our nation actually looking like and acting like we are a country that's represented by every country from around the world. The League for New America, that's our brand. And it's a great brand relative to making sure that it stays current. So getting into the whole youth issue, youth soccer, youth development programs, first and foremost, a lot of progress? There have been a lot of progress. It's a good question, Rick, because when the league was founded, there was this idea that you can build a league around all those tens of millions of kids that play. And that ultimately is not really where our fan base is today. It's all those kids that grew up playing yeah. that now are millennials and are consumers that are influencers that are driving purchase decisions that are politicians and CEOs of companies. And they all came out of that movement and they're now the core of our fan base. But you've done more than that. So in 06, the under 16, under 18, a lot of structures that were in place that when you go across the pond, you see how dynamic that is, but Americans may not have understood how important that is here. Leap of faith, significant, successful? Well, you know, I would say we're on the path to success. You know, we spend more money today on youth development through our academy programs than we were spending overall as a league in terms of player salaries probably five or six or seven years ago. Uh, but that's a long-term investment. Uh, I think the payoff will be in time. Uh, right now, we're uh, feeling pretty good about it. We've got some young kids that are coming up through our academies, playing for our clubs, playing for our national team. Talk about the stars of the league, salary cap, leveling the playing field. Every league does it. You have to respond in certain ways with all of that. The designated player rule. Is, are you happy with where that is today? You know, I've got to go back to the, the earlier question, which was the question about the single entity. Yeah. Single entity has owners acting as partners. That doesn't mean that we're there to try to pay players less money. It's actually quite the opposite. They can come together and decide on ways that they can pay players more money. And in this case, the designated player rule is the best example of that. How do you attract star players? How did, we did research that showed that the, the soccer fan in this country wanted to see the David Beckhams of the world and the Frank Lampards and the Andrea Pirlos and the Sebastian Giovinkos. We were able to create a mechanism the franchise player, the designated player, the Beckham rule that allows us to sign those players in a way that still fits within our system. And understanding the global audience of Reuters and the fact that uh, there still is the, uh, stigma is the wrong word, there's the perception that there's the Premier League, the Bundesliga, and then there's kind of everybody else. Where do you see the quality of MLS today uh, fitting into kind of the pantheon of world soccer? You know, I think it's important to uh, recognize where you are and have a realistic view of where you fit in, uh, in against your competitors, uh, but still aspire to be as good as they are. So our goal is to be one of the top soccer leagues in the world and, and continue to invest in the quality of play and the in-stadium experience and ensuring that we're doing all those things so that when people think about the Premier League or the Bundesliga Serie A, at some point soon they think about Major League Soccer. Uh, but we recognize we're not there yet. 
And I think that's a smart approach because if you try to be something you're not too fast, you won't get there. Uh, yet, if you don't push yourself to try to get there, then you never will. Uh, so uh, I think overall the international football community believes in MLS in many ways as being of higher quality than perhaps some of the soccer folks here in America do. That's because the reality is it's getting pretty darn good. And compared to international soccer that now Americans are seeing for the first time immersively with NBC and others carrying the games at all hours, does that help you because it exposes soccer to a whole bunch of people that they've never seen it before, or does it hurt you because it, it emphasizes the quality difference? You know, I think the, the theor thing, our theory has always been to build a soccer nation in the U.S. and yeah. Canada, try to convert people who are perhaps not fans of our game to be fans of the sport professionally. We do a lot of research that looks into uh, what people are looking for with their professional soccer affinity. Uh, I think the fact that NBC does a great job with the Premier League early in the morning and Saturday and Sunday is good for us. Right. We're trying to create a culture of soccer, professional soccer watchers. And uh, I think if you look at the growth of the, of the market here, it's continued to explode, as has Major League Soccer. So, so far, the rising tide has lifted all boats. And guess what? We have the most boats on the water. And as, as the, the television boats, have, have the numbers borne out the synergy between the international soccer here and the growth of, of, of eyeballs for the MLS? You know, it's getting there, Rick. It's not where we want it to be. Uh, we've got great deals with ESPN and Fox and Univision. We have ratings yeah. growth this year, our audience have grown. We just a few weeks ago had a, a great... Uh, uh, play-in game that was on uni uh, series that was on Univision. They had record ratings for it, but like everything else, we recognize that it's part of a process. We've got eight-year deals with our three broadcast partners here. Similarly, in Canada on TSN uh, and in French language, and overall, they're seeing some good growth. And how about MLS internationally too? I know there's a a new. Uh African deal, there are some other deals that You know, are there's there. been a lot of growth for us. Yeah. A couple of years ago, we had no international television distribution at all. This year, we're on Sky in, in the UK, we're on Eurosport throughout Europe, we're on Globo in Brazil and many, many places around the world. Uh, our games in England are on at 9 o'clock at night, so you're watching a, a slate of Premier League games, and then on comes the MLS game of the week. And we've had some great audiences there, but it's the beginning of an international strategy. Television drives that, and then we will fill that in with international exhibition games and merchandising programs, sponsor programs, player promotional programs as well. Are you going everywhere? Going to the Far East? We're everywhere. We're, on, we're in China. We're throughout Southeast Asia. Our games are broadcast around the world. Just this past week, I have a friend who's on uh, a trip to Cuba. And he watched the, uh, the recent Red Bull game uh, sitting in a bar watching it in Cuba. That was pretty cool. I mean, I got a surprise text from a buddy. So uh, we're, we're really everywhere today. Olympics, what about the growth of the MLS, not just soccer, relative to Rio? Any new innovative plans there as far as that's concerned? So, you know, we, uh, we have not yet easily qualified for the Olympics yeah. in Rio. The women did, and, and I think that we'll see, again, another great run for the U.S. women in, uh, uh, in Brazil. The men have to uh, go down to uh, Colombia and uh, play in a qualifier there to try to get in. We're hopeful that they do. 
I think if we do and you have the men and you have the women playing on NBC, I think it will be one of the profiled sports uh, for their coverage. Let's talk about corporate sponsors. Uh, the the uh, the kit, the jersey sponsorship deals seem to be coming uh, prolifically. You also have the master sponsorship deals with the MLS as well. How's that doing? You know, our commercial business is growing fairly dramatically. We, we uh, founded a company in 2002 called Soccer United Marketing. That company represents Major League Soccer, but the U.S. Soccer Federation, the Mexican Federation re has represented CONCACAF. Uh, we've got the only league in the United States now that is Major League that is selling uh, jersey sponsorship on the front. It's a business that's exploded for us, gives us great exposure because many of them are international companies, also generates a lot of revenue. Uh, our commercial business is growing uh, fairly significantly, and that's a positive. So Herbalife signs a deal publicly, $5 million a year, or whatever the number is for the Galaxy, and then you realize that your buddy across the city, Adam Silver, is having some issues getting harmony over uniform shirt sponsorship deals, and you say, we have a single entity, so that would be pretty easy for us to do, or something like that. Well, again, Rick, I don't know that the difference between us doing it and them not has anything to do with the entity. I think it has to do with history, and mm -hmm. you know, we're a young league, we're yeah. only 20 years old, we can make some decisions that perhaps might be a bit more innovative. They do have jersey sponsorships at the WNBA. Yeah. I think they tested that to see whether it would work for uh, the NBA. I think the time will come very soon where you'll see logos on almost all major league uh, uniforms. There's no reason not to. You have them everywhere else. Why not put it on the uniform? Uh, I, I don't know that it's happening in the next year or two or five, but you know, I think the time will come when we'll see commercial logos on uniforms in the other major leagues. And the Coca-Cola, Heineken, Johnson & Johnson, the big time league sponsorships for you, they get benefits that transcend individual markets. There are national sponsorships and international sponsorships as well. You know, one of the things that I think is uh, sort of quintessential uh, about the American sports marketing model is this concept of national sponsorship and local sponsorship. And uh, it's one of the things that I think makes the American leagues attractive to the Premier League and the Syria and, and clearly the rest of global sport. Uh, so we have a, a very vibrant commercial business nationally. They get certain benefits and values, signboards and intellectual property rights, and then the local clubs get their ability to do local deals. They can sell local sponsorship. They can do local television. And overall, the goal is to grow the enterprise. I mean, we do look at this from an enterprise perspective as opposed to just the league budget or just our individual club budgets. Expansion and facilities. Fun, validating, liberating, economically viable to have more markets that want you than spaces to expand? You know, it's uh, when I first came into the league in 1999, you know, we had 12 teams, then 10 teams. Uh, some of those teams were owned by the league owners. Yeah. Uh, and there was a time when we couldn't give our teams away to those who ultimately would have to incur the cost of operating them. You know, today there's a, a very vibrant market. We don't have enough teams uh, to sell. Expansion will go carefully. I'm sure we'll talk about that a bit. Uh, there is a bit of an internal market where uh, some teams are beginning to get sold and the asset has appreciated over time. I think that's a positive. Uh, overall, um, there has been uh, a very, very careful strategic approach to how we've expanded the league. I think it will be the thing that uh, my generation of, of league executives will be known for. We went from 10 teams to what will soon be 24 in a 15, 16 year period. And, 25, 30 years from now, nobody will remember those, those days. And, and, and 
give me your overall take on, on the economics of expansion as well. There's, there's always the quick fix of gobbling up the fees, but people have to understand that if you're in it for the long term, that means dividing up the revenues by X plus and making sure you have viable markets. So wh where's the, how's the trade-off work? Well, you know, expansion actually is a cost negative yeah. because you're expanding the league, your costs are going up, uh, and your revenues, you're not getting more television money or more sponsorship money because you add a team or two. Uh, they do pay, pay a fee to come in because you're diluting the, the collective ownership of those national revenues. Uh, but uh, that's really irrelevant to the process. The process is about getting good owners in, in the right markets, with the right stadiums, creating mass scale, if you will, like any business, so that ultimately you have more people who can become a local fan of an MLS team, because that is the difference between us and watching a game on television from the UK or from Germany or from Spain. You can paint your face, you can wave a flag, you can go to your local pub, you can go to a stadium and you can be a local fan. And that's what drives true fan avidity and that leads to value. And as far as those stadiums to be that kind of fan, you've been the undisputed pioneer in successfully implementing soccer-specific stadiums, which is an amazing situation that, that you've created. Yet there are some expansion opportunities where you're going into shared facilities, though with owners that own both. Atlanta, a good example, too. Right. So where how do you decide where a soccer-specific stadium, like what you're looking at in Miami, is, is necessary and how you're willing to decide to deal with a football stadium with an owner that uh, has both? You know, it, it really is market-specific. Mm -hmm. uh, stadium location is a key driver of what we've seen uh, as um, elements of success. Uh, in a perfect world, all of your teams are playing at soccer stadiums. Yeah. You control them entirely. You don't have to worry about other people using the field. Uh, but there are going to be markets, and Atlanta will be a perfect one, where we now have 26,000 season ticket deposits for a team that's playing in a year and a half. Uh, that we've made the decision we think it will actually be better for us than of having a soccer stadium in a location that's not as centrally located. You can't argue with the success in Seattle. Seattle had a near 100% season ticket renewal rate, and they've got 42,000 season ticket holders. You know, that's the envy of any professional sport, let alone professional soccer team, and that's a shared building. So you realize when you operate a business, there's no singular formula to success. It's a hybrid to your thinking, and uh, being open and flexible and uh, taking a bit of risk is uh, part of the, the formula. And the interesting trade-off is that there are stadiums in large markets like Harrison where you've basically capped because of the capacity, but you feel comfortable with that cap and the value and the exclusivity of the ticket. And yet, in some other stadium situations, the sky is the limit. Seattle, for example, another example. Yeah, I, I think if you're going to do this all again, Seattle probably would have... Uh, looked at maybe building a 40,000-seat yeah. stadium right. uh, and then owning and controlling it, having, yeah. don't have to worry about partnering and scheduling. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I do think that when you look at look what's going on in the NFL where they're leaving uh, or need a new stadium in San Diego or a new stadium in St. Louis, and, uh, you know, stadiums term yeah. out. And after 20 years, the Meadowlands, now MetLife is an example of that. These things aren't forever. The league will be around forever. So you're making a decision that's right for this generation and then maybe a generation from now. You're building 30,000 or 40,000 seat stadiums. Let's talk about how you feel running this league. Are you, um, are you comfortable the league is getting the publicity you ought to? No. Okay. Uh, and you, I don't think you ever will. I bet you the NFL would say they're not getting enough publicity. 
you always want more. You always believe that it's deserved. Uh, I'll look at an article on another sport when we have a big game, and I'll say, man, who could possibly care as much as that article warrants just in terms of real estate? Right. And, uh, and I certainly will believe that we need more soccer coverage on in print and digital, on television, more Sports Center highlights. But you know, I'll never back off from that, and uh, I don't think anybody would expect me to. Nobody will expect you to, and over the last next 16 years, you've, you've effectively changed this perception that it's a niche sport. How do you feel, don't shoot the messenger, but how do you feel when people call soccer in the United States a niche sport? Uh, it isn't. I mean, you, there's all the measures that would determine it right. uh, really speak to the fact that it's a major league. You've got local television, local media coverage, you have facilities, you've got people working, living in the community. We have... 2,000 uh, jobs just for any new stadium project. I mean, these are real business drivers. It's still smaller than everybody else. We recognize that. At some point, it will be equal to, maybe bigger than others. Uh, but all the things that go into what make a major league, being part of the conversation, being part of the cultural discourse, these are all things. Uh, having a trip to the White House so pre the President of the United States can receive a jersey or a kit from the championship team, these are all things that measure whether or not we matter, and we do matter. Maybe less than others, but we matter a lot. So when you sit down with uh, Roger Goodell for a lunch or Gary Bettman or, or Adam Silver, is there enough growth to go around where you feel like you're um, collaborating, or is it a uh, intensely competitive and ruthlessly so world to capture every entertainment dollar? Uh, you know, I don't. It isn't that way at all, Rick. Particularly for us. I mean, yeah. it's possible they compete with each other, but you know, we are competing really against the soccer uh, uh, competitors. Uh, there are you know, 64 million soccer fans in the United States who say they follow a professional league, and not all of them are MLS fans. So we can go and get fans from all those people who are playing the EA game, who are watching a game on NBC or watching it on being sport or a national team fan. And if we capture all them, then we could worry about what's happening with the other leagues here. If you had a magic wand and you were commissioner for, for day, oh wait, you are the commissioner for day. So if you didn't have to deal with the owners and there was a personal preference <laughs> and you had one thing you wanted to change, Not dealing with owners. what would it be? <laughs> what would it be? <laughs> Uh, boy, that's a good question. I, you know, I, I, I think it probably speaks to the, uh, the media coverage. Uh, I think we deserve more attention than we get. But you can't complain about it because you'll sound like you're whining. I, I, I can't complain about it because we've come a long way. Yeah. But uh, I do believe that some of the decision makers that determine influence are of a generation that perhaps haven't grown up with the game and don't see the value of the game. Uh, and therefore don't give the league the attention it deserves. Uh, I say this when I speak to the AP sports editors and I'm sitting around a table and I'm looking at somebody at a major metropolitan daily and saying, who is your reader? And trust me when I tell you, your reader is young, they're diverse. In many cases, they might be speaking Spanish. They're probably accessing their news in places outside of their local paper. And they're soccer fans because we know the second most favorite sport for millennials is professional soccer after the NFL. And it's very possible that that editor doesn't get that because they might not be hanging out with that 20-something 
who lives in Brooklyn or lives in downtown Portland or has moved from the suburbs and is living in an urban environment uh, and has become a fan of our game. And my statement to them is get with the program or you're going to miss it. What's the league look like in 10 years? It's bigger. Uh, it has uh, more ubiquity. I think we are more uh, <laughs> uh, part of the conversation than we even are today. I think we will be viewed as uh, competitive with the other leagues around the world, if not in terms of their revenue, if not in terms of their uh, the overall quality of play. I think people will say, we're the top leagues in the world, and MLS will be part of that. That's probably happening in 10 years. Is Don Garber part of that league 10 years from now? No. Really? Is this a scoop? Is no, this new it's not information? A scoop. <laughs> it's just not happening. Does he leave voluntarily or not? <laughs> <laughs> I can't answer that, but I will tell you I'm not going to be part of the league in 10 years. There's a scoop. There Are we having more fun now than we did uh, uh, during our 16 years with the NFL? Uh, yes, Rick. I mean, I loved my time there, and I had a fun job, and I was involved in fan development and events and television and generating revenue. But, you know, this is a cause, right? And it started as something where a bunch of folks came together and said, we believe that America is no different than the rest of the world, that this sport is not foreign, that perhaps it is the most American of all sports because it is a new America. And we've been able to ride some of those uh, shifts in demographics and, and shifts in the way people are thinking and behaving and deliver to them a new professional sports league that uh, behaves and operates and, uh, and delivers in ways that maybe some of the traditional, more established leagues uh, don't. And I think that's been, that's been a lot of fun for us. And that crystallizes and kind of sets up the next question, which is that when you're called the soccer Don and the Don of soccer, people do it lovingly, and people, I don't think, realize the passion that you bring to this. Right. And history will probably write, in addition to the economic benefits, that you are one of the most passionate commissioners to ever run a league. How does it make you feel? Well, I, I, to be fair, Rick, there, if you're doing this every day, whether it's here, basketball, baseball, I mean, you, you got to be passionate about it because it's an all-encompassing job. You're managing the public, you're managing your owners, you're managing players in a union, you're trying to grow revenues at the same time, deal with all the pressures of being in the public eye, right? All the things that you write about and talk about and think about. Uh, so we all are big believers. Um, I, I think you got to really believe to work in soccer because it's so hard. You know, we are the newest pro sports league. We are the one that's fighting against a lot of the more traditional views about what sport, professional sport, uh, should be. Uh, and the, most of the folks here have been here since the beginning. And I think that speaks to the passion that people have. And soccer, by its very nature, is a passionate sport. It kind of gets into your gut. It's why you see people yelling and screaming at referees and painting their faces and waving flags and celebrating and engaging in ways that they can't do, perhaps, with some of the other sports. And anticipating that goal when it finally happens and the heavens open up and people are hugging and kissing and screaming and crying, that kind of passion flows through uh, to those people who work in it every day, whether it's me or it's the people who work with me or it's people who work at the clubs. And you've done a, an amazing job in the last 16 years, and now we know you've got a lot to do in what will be less than 10. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to this edition of Keeping Score. I'm Rick Haro. The producer of the show is Alex Cohen. Audio producer, Adam Wieson. Technical assistance provided by Jamie Weber, Tanner Simpkins, and Carlos Waddick. The executive editor of Reuters Digital... Dan Calaruso.